Chapter Thirty of the Benefactress by Elizabeth von Arnim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Helen Taylor, Oxford, UK. Anna drove into Stralsund the next morning to her banker, accompanied by Miss Leech. When they passed Axel's house, she saw that his gate posts were festooned with wreaths, and that garlands of flowers were strung across the gateway, swaying to and fro softly in the light breeze. "'Why, how festive it looks!' she exclaimed, wondering. "'Yesterday was Herr von Lohm's birthday,' said Miss Leech. "'I heard Princess Ludwig say so.' "'Oh,' said Anna. Her tone was piqued. She turned her head away and looked at the hayfields on the opposite side of the road. Axel must have birthdays, of course. And why should he not put things round his gate-posts if he wanted to? Yet she would not look again, and was silent the rest of the way, nor was it of any use for Miss Leech to attempt to while away the long drive with pleasant conversation. Anna would not talk. She said it was too hot to talk. What she was thinking was that men were exceedingly horrid, all of them, and that life was a snare. Far from being festive, however, Axel's latest birthday was quite the most solitary he had yet spent. The cheerful garlands had been put up by an officious gardener, on his own initiative. No one— except Axel's own dependents, had passed beneath them to wish him luck. Trudy had telegraphed her blessings, administering them thus in their easiest form. His thousand friends had apparently forgotten him. In other years they had been glad of the excuse the birthday gave for driving out into the country in June. But this year the astonished Mamselle saw her birthday cake remain untouched, and her baked meats waiting vainly for someone to come and eat them. Axel neither noticed nor cared. The haymaking season had just begun, and besides his own affairs he was preoccupied by Anna's. If she had not been shut up so long in the Baroness's sick-room, she would have met him often enough. She thought he never intended to come near her again, and all the time, whenever he could spare a moment, and often when he could not, he was on her property, watching Delvig's farming operations. She should not suffer, he told himself, because he loved her. She should not be punished because she was not able to love him. He would go on doing what he could for her, and was certainly at his age not going to sulk and leave her to face her difficulties alone. The first time he met Delvig on these incursions into Anna's domain, he expected to be received with a scowl. But Delvig did not scowl at all, was on the contrary quite affable, even volunteering information about the work he had in hand nor had he been, after all, offensively zealous in searching for the person who had set the stables on fire, and luckily the Stralsund police had not been very zealous either. Klutz was looked for for a little while, after Axel had denounced him as the probable culprit, but the matter had been dropped apparently, and for the last ten days nothing more had been said or done. Axel was beginning to hope the whole thing had blown over, that there would be no unpleasantness after all for Anna. Hearing that the Baroness was nearly well, he decided to go and call at Kleinwalder, as though nothing had happened. Sometime or other, he must meet Anna. They could not live on adjoining estates and never see each other. The day after his birthday, he arranged to go round in the afternoon, and take up the threads of ordinary intercourse again, however much it made him suffer. Meanwhile, Anna did her business in Stralsund discovered on interviewing her banker that she had already spent more than two-thirds of a whole year's income, lunched pensively after that on ices with Miss Leech, walked down to the quay and watched the unloading of the fishing-smacks while Fritz and the horses had their dinner, 
was very much stared at by the inhabitants, who seldom saw anything so pretty, and finally at about two o'clock started again for home. As they drew near Axel's gate and she was preparing to turn her face away from its ostentatious gaiety, a closed droshka came through it towards them, followed at a short distance by a second. Miss Leech said nothing, strange though this spectacle was on that quiet road, for she felt that these were the departing guests, and, like Anna, she wondered how a man who loved in vain could have the heart to give parties. Anna said nothing either, but watched the approaching droshkas curiously. Axel was sitting in the first one, on the side near her. He wore his ordinary farming clothes, the Norfolk jacket and the soft green hat. There were three men with him, seedy-looking individuals, in black coats. She bowed instinctively, for he was looking out of the window full at her, but he took no notice. She turned very white. The second droshka contained four more queer-looking persons in black clothes. When they had passed, Fritz pulled up his horses of his own accord, and, twisting himself round, stared after the receding cloud of dust. Anna had been cut by Axel, but it was not that that made her turn so white. It was something in his face. He had looked straight at her, and he had not seen her. "'Who are those people?' she asked Fritz, in a voice that faltered. She did not know why. Fritz did not answer. He stared down the road after the Droshkas shook his head, began to scratch it, jerked himself round again to his horses, drove on a few yards, pulled them up a second time, looked back, shook his head, and was silent. "'Fritz, do you know them?' Anna asked more authoritatively, but Fritz only mumbled something soothing and drove on. Anna had not failed to notice the old man's face as he watched the departing Droshkas. It wore an oddly amazed and scared expression. Her heart seemed to sink within her like a stone, yet she could give herself no reason for it. She tried to order him to turn up the avenue to Axel's house, but her lips were dry and the words would not come, and while she was struggling to speak the gate was passed. Then she was relieved that it was passed, for how could she, only because she had a presentiment of trouble, go to Axel's house? What did she think of doing there? Miss Leech glanced at her and asked if anything was the matter. "'No,' said Anna in a whisper, looking straight before her. Nor was there anything the matter. Only that blind look on Axel's face and the strange feeling in her heart. A knot of people stood outside the post-office, talking eagerly. They all stopped talking to stare at Anna when the carriage came round the corner. Fritz whipped up his horses and drove past them at a gallop. "'Wait! I want to get out!' cried Anna as they came to the parsonage. "'Do you mind waiting?' she asked Miss Leech. "'I want to speak to Herr Pastor. I will not be a moment.' She went up the trim little path to the porch. The maid of all work was clearing away the coffee from the table. Frau Manske came bustling out when she heard Anna's voice asking for her husband. She looked extraordinarily excited. "'He has not come back yet,' she cried before Anna could speak. "'He is still at the Schloss. Gott du Allmachtiger! Did anyone ever hear of anything so terrible?' Anna looked at her, her face as white as her dress. "'Tell me,' she tried to say, but no sound passed her lips. She made a great effort, and the words came in a whisper. "'Tell me,' she said. "'What the gracious miss has not heard? Herr von Lohm has been arrested!' It was impossible not to enjoy imparting so tremendous a piece of news, however genuinely shocked one might be. Frau Manske brought it out with a ring of pride. 
it would not be easy to beat, she felt, in the way of news. Then she remembered the gossip about Anna and Axel, and observed her with increased interest. Was she going to faint? It would be the only becoming course for her to take if it were true that they had been courting. But Anna, whose voice had failed her before, when once she heard what it was that had happened, seemed curiously cold and composed. "'What was he accused of?' was all she asked. So calmly, Frau Manske afterwards told her friends, that it was not even womanly in the face of so great a misfortune. "'He set fire to the stables,' said Frau Manske. "'It's a lie,' said Anna. Also, as Frau Manske afterwards pointed out to her friends, an unwomanly remark. "'He did it himself, to get the insurance money.' "'It is a lie,' repeated Anna in that cold voice. "'Eye-witnesses will swear to it.' "'They will lie,' said Anna again, and turned and walked away. "'Go on,' she said to Fritz, taking her place beside Miss Leech. She sat quite silent till they were near the house. Then she called to the coachman to stop. "'I'm going into the forest for a little while,' she said, jumping out. "'You drive on home.' And she crossed the road quickly, her white dress fluttering for a moment between the pine-trunks, and then disappearing in the soft green shadow. Miss Leech drove on alone, sighing gently. Something was troubling her dear Miss Estcourt. Something out of the ordinary had happened. She wished she could help her. She drove on, sighing. Directly the road was out of sight, Anna struck back again to the left, across the moss and lichen, towards a place where she knew there was a path that led to Lohm. She walked very straight and very quickly. She did not miss her way, but found the path and hastened her steps to a run. What were they doing to Axel? She was going to his house, alone. People would talk. Who cared? And when she had heard all that could be told her there, she was going to Axel himself. People would talk. Who cared? The laughable indifference of slander, when big issues of life and death were at stake. All the tongues of all the world should not frighten her away from Axel. Her eyes had a new look in them. For the first time she was wide awake was facing life as it is without dreams, facing its absolute cruelty and pitilessness. This was life, these were the realities, suffering, injustice and shame, not to be avoided apparently by the most honourable and innocent of men, but at least to be fought, with all the weapons in one's power, with unflinching courage to the end, whatever the end might be. That was what one needed most of all the gifts of the gods, not happiness, oh, foolish, childish dream, how could there be happiness so long as men were wicked? But courage! That blind look on Axel's face, no, she would not think of that, it tore her heart, she stumbled a little as she ran, no, she would not think of that. Out in the open, between the forest and Lohm, she met Manske. I was coming to you, he said. I am going to him, said Anna. "'Oh, my dear young lady!' cried Manske, and two big tears rolled down his face. "'Don't cry,' she said. "'It does not help him.' "'How can I not do so after seeing what I have this day seen?' She hurried on. "'Come,' she said. "'We must not waste time. He needs help. I am going to his house to see what I can do. Where did they take him?' "'They took him to prison.' "'Where?' "'Stralsund.' "'Will he be there long?' "'Till after the trial.' And that will be... God knows. I am going to him. Come with me. We will take his horses. 
"'Oh, dear Miss, dear Miss!' cried Manska, wringing his hands. "'They will not let us see him. "'You they will not let in under any circumstances, "'and me only across mountains of obstacles. "'The official who conducted the arrest, "'when I prayed for permission to visit my dear patron, "'was brutality itself.' "'Why should you visit him?' he asked, sneering. "'The prison chaplain will do all that is needful for his soul.' "'Let it be, Manska,' said my dear patron, but still I prayed. "'I cannot give you permission,' said the man at last, weary of my importunity. "'It rests with my chief. You must go to him.' "'Who is the chief?' "'I know not. I know nothing. My head is in a whirl.' "'He must be somewhere in Stralsund. We will find him. If we have to ask from door to door.' and I'll get permission for myself.' "'Oh, dearest miss, none will be given you,' the man said, only his nearest relatives, and those only very seldom, for I asked all I could. I felt the moments were priceless. My dear patron spoke not a word. "'His wife, if he has one,' said the man, making hideous pleasantries, he knew well there is no wife, or his brout, if there is one, or a brother or a sister, but no one else. "'Do his brothers and Trudy know?' I at once telegraphed to them. Then they will be here to-night. The women and children in the village ran out to look at Anna as she passed. She did not see them. Axel's house stood open. The mamzelle, overcome by the shame of having been in such a service, was in hysterics in the kitchen, and the inspector, a devoted servant who loved his master, was upbraiding her with bitterest indignation for daring to say such things of such a master. The mamzelle's laments and the inspector's furious reproaches echoed through the empty house. The door, like the gate, was garlanded with flowers. Little more than an hour had gone by since Axel passed out beneath them to ruin. Anna went straight to the study. His papers were lying about in disorder. The drawer of the writing-table was unlocked and his keys hung on it. He had been writing letters, evidently, for an unfinished one lay on the table. She stood a moment quite still in the silent room. Manska had gone to find the coachman, and she could hear his steps on the stones beneath the open windows. The desolation of the deserted room, the terrible sense of misfortune worse than death that brooded over it, struck her like a blow that for ever destroyed her cheerful youth. She never forgot the look and the feeling of that room. She went to the writing-table, dropped on her knees, and laid her cheek with an abandonment of tenderness on the open, unfinished letter. "'How are such things possible? How are they possible?' she murmured passionately, shutting her eyes to press back the useless tears. "'So useless to cry, so useless!' she repeated piteously, as she felt the scalding tears, in spite of all her efforts to keep them back, stealing through her eyelashes. And everything else that she did or could do, how useless!' What could she do for him who had no claim on him at all? How could she reach him across this gulf of misery? Yes, it was good to be brave in this world. It was good to have courage, but courage without weapons? Of what use was it? She was a woman, a stranger in a strange land. She had no friends, no influence. She was useless. Manska found her kneeling there, holding the writing-table tightly in her outstretched arms, pressing her bosom against it as though it were something that could feel, her eyes shut, her face a desolation. "'Do not cry,' he begged in his turn. "'Dearest miss, do not cry. It cannot help him.' They locked up his papers and everything that they thought might be of value before they left. Manska took the keys. 
Anna half put out her hand for them, then dropped it at her side. She had less claim than Manske. He was Axel's pastor. She was nothing to him at all. They left the dog-cart at the entrance to the town, and went in search of a droshka. Manske's weather-beaten face flushed a dull red when he gave the order to drive to the prison. The prison was in a by-street of shabby houses. Heads appeared at the windows of the houses as the droshka rattled up over the rough stones, and the children, playing about the doors and gutters, stopped their games and crowded round to stare. They went up the dirty steps and rang the bell. The door was immediately opened a few inches by an official who shouted, "'The visiting air's passed!' and shut it again. Manska rang a second time. "'Well, what do you want?' asked the man angrily, thrusting out his head. Manska stated in the mildest, most conciliatory tones that he would be infinitely obliged if he would tell him what steps he ought to take to obtain permission to visit one of the inmates. "'You must have a written order,' snapped the man, preparing to shut the door again. The street children were clustering at the bottom of the steps, listening eagerly. "'To whom should I apply?' asked Manske. "'To the judge who's conducted the preliminary inquiries.' The door was slammed and locked from within with a great noise of rattling keys. The sound of the keys made Anna feel faint. Axel was on the other side of that ostentation of brute force. She leaned against the wall, shivering. The children tittered. She was a very fine lady, they thought, to have friends in there. "'The judge who conducted the preliminary inquiries,' repeated Manske, looking dazed. "'Who may he be? Where shall we find him? I fear I am sadly inexperienced in these matters.' There was nothing to be done but to face the official's wrath once more. He timidly rang the bell again. This time he was kept waiting. There was a little round window in the door, and he could see the man on the other side leaning against a table, trimming his nails. The man could also see him. Manske began to knock on the glass in his desperation. The man remained absorbed by his nails. Anna was suffering a martyrdom. Her head drooped lower and lower. The children laughed loud. Just then heavy steps were heard approaching on the pavement, and the children fled with one accord. Immediately afterwards an official, apparently of a higher grade than the man within, came up. He glanced curiously at the two suppliants, as he thrust his hand into his pocket and pulled out a key. Before he could fit it in the lock, the man on the other side had seen him, had sprung to the door, flung it open, and stood at attention. Manske saw that here was his opportunity. He snatched off his hat. "'Sir!' he cried. "'One moment, for God's sake!' "'Well?' inquired the official sharply. "'Where can I obtain an order of admission?' "'To see... my dear patron, Herr von Lohm, who by some incomprehensible and appalling mistake you must go to the judge who conducted the preliminary inquiries. "'But who is he, and where is he to be found?' The official looked at his watch. "'If you hurry, you may still find him at the law courts in the next street, examining Judge Schultz.' And the door was shut." So they went to the law courts, and hurried up and down staircases and along endless corridors, vainly looking for someone to direct them to examining Judge Schultz. The building was empty, they did not meet a soul, and they went down one passage after the other, anguish in Anna's heart, and misery hardly less acute in Manske's. At last they heard distant voices echoing through the emptiness. They followed the sound and found two women, cleaning. "'Can you direct me to the room of the examining Judge Schultz?' asked Manske, bowing politely. "'The gentlemen have all gone home. Business hours are over,' was the answer. Could they perhaps give his private address? 
No, they could not. Perhaps the porter knew. Where was the porter? Somewhere about. They hurried down again in search of the porter. Another ten minutes was wasted looking for him. They saw him at last through the glass of the entrance door, airing himself on the steps. The porter gave them the address, and they lost some more minutes trying to find their droshka, for they had come out at a different entrance to the one they had gone in by. By this time Manska was speechless, and Anna was half dead. They climbed three flights of stairs to the examining judge's flat, and after being kept waiting a long while, "'Der Herr Untersuchungsrichter ist bei Tisch,' the slovenly girl had announced, were told by him very curtly that they must go to the public prosecutor for the order. Anna went out without a word. Manske bowed and apologised profusely for having disturbed the Herr Untersuchungsrichter at his repast. He felt the necessity of grovelling before these persons whose power was so almighty. The examining judge made no reply whatever to these piteous amiabilities, but turned on his heel, leaving them to find the door as best they could. The public prosecutor lived at the other end of the town. They neither of them spoke a word on the way there. In answer to their anxious inquiry whether they could speak to him, the woman who opened the door said that her master was asleep. It was his hour for repose, having just supped, and he could not possibly be disturbed. Anna began to cry. Manske gripped hold of her hand and held it fast, patting it, while he continued to question the servant. "'He will see no one so late,' she said. "'He will sleep now till nine, and then go out. You must come to-morrow.' "'At what time?' "'At ten he goes to the law courts. You must come before then.' "'Thank you,' said Manske, and drew Anna away. "'Do not cry, Lieberskind. he implored, his own eyes brimming with miserable tears. "'Do not let the coachman see you like this. We must go home now. There is nothing to be done.' We will come early to-morrow and have more success. They stopped a moment in the dark entrance below, trying to compose their faces before going out. They did not dare look at each other. Then they went out and drove away. The stars were shining as they passed along the quiet country road, and all the way was drenched with the fragrance of clover and freshly cut hay. The sky above the rye-fields on the left was still rosy, not a leaf stirred. Once, when the coachman stopped to take a stone out of a horse's shoe, they could hear the crickets and the cheerful humming of a column of gnats high above their heads. End of chapter 30